Hey, it's Jess, and this is The Podling, a series that explores what linguistics looks like inside and out of the classroom, starting with our very own professors here at Western. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Anne Lobeck to talk about her recent research project that became a class, and within this, how the framing of descriptivism and prescriptivism isn't as unambiguous as good versus bad. We also talk about microvariation and the quirks of language regarded as errors, even though their usage is intentional and patterned. Thank you to Graham Blair for the adept assembly of this episode's transcript. And now, on to the interview. Thank you so much for being here, Anne. How has your spring quarter been so far? It's been great. It's been a little bit of a technology challenge. Lots of things have gone wrong, but um, my students have been totally forgiving and wonderful. And so we're muddling through and the weather's nice. That really helps. Um, So yeah, so far so good. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's everyone had to learn so many new things so fast, I think, across the board. And I know having been alongside you in classes, I appreciate all the work you put in uh, in terms of grappling with all of the new tech. Oh, it's endless. Yeah. 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 And we all, like, it all happened so fast, but yeah. So the first thing I'd like to ask is, would you introduce yourself, uh, your background and your roles at Western, uh, some of the topics you research in and teach, or anything else you want to add? Wow. I guess I'd say uh, I came to Western in 1990, so I've been there for a very long time. And I have my 30-year sweatshirt to prove it. You get a sweatshirt. You get something from the bookstore when you get 30 years or 25 years or whatever. It's pretty exciting. And I've always just loved teaching at Western. I taught for four years at the University of Alabama before I came to Western. So I had um, a job that I came from to uh, Western. And I just have been very happy at Western the whole time. Um, I came to the English department. I taught in the English department up until we finally got the linguistics department going. So I've always taught linguistics, but it's been through the English department. Many of the same courses I teach right now, but again, I taught them for the linguistics program, but I was a faculty member in English. And I'm just thrilled to death to be in a linguistics department with my wonderful colleagues. And it's very exciting and long overdue. And I'm just so happy now to be I was very happy in English as well, but um, it's just really great to be in a linguistics department and and be teaching full-time in linguistics. Mm -hmm. So that's been the last few years since we got the department going. I've I've been teaching full-time there, so that's been great. My PhD was from the University of Washington, and my master's and PhD both from there, and I went to Whitman College where I majored in French. So um, that's sort of my academic background. So, yeah, I teach uh, Linguistics 201, which is the intro, and 310, which is the intro to the major, Linguistic Analysis, but my specialty is Syntax, so I teach 321 and um, the Advanced Course in Syntax. Syntactic Theory is what I'm most specifically trained in, although I've taught semantics and 
um, other classes too. I really like teaching undergraduate linguistics because it's very exciting to get students involved in linguistics early on. There weren't really undergraduate programs when I was in college, and so I didn't really have the opportunity. If I had had a linguistics program, I would have jumped on it in a heartbeat mm -hmm. in college because that was what I was really interested in. But really, the only way you could sort of study the structure of language was through, you know, what then we'd call foreign language classes, which mm -hmm. was why I majored in French. Mm -hmm. um, and I teach language and gender. Um, else have I taught? I recently taught a class on bad grammar, which is my current research area of interest. Mm -hmm. I like teaching courses on language and identity, things like that. I've taught some uh, courses on language variation and the history of English. I really like teaching about the history of English or historical linguistics. So just a range of things. That's the kind of beauty yeah. of teaching at a university like Western is I have had a lot of variety in um, the courses that I've taught. So Mm -hmm. It's been yeah. great. Oh, I love that. I love the range because I, you know, knew that, of course, you teach syntax and 310 and like the more intro side stuff, but I had no clue that you've taught across such a range of classes because we're only here, you know, on the student side for a little snippet of time. So, right. yeah. yeah, very cool to learn that you've taught across just so many areas. The bad grammar class that you said is new and was taught in winter this past winter 2021 i am so curious about the research that led into that class that you were working on uh, i know the prior academic year 2019 2020 and how it culminated in a class so would you tell us a little bit about that research oh it was so fun it was my sabbatical research i've always been really interested in prescriptive grammar, sort of a deeper dive into prescriptive grammar than just, you know, mm -hmm. there's these stupid arbitrary rules. It, it's very easy in linguistics to sort of sideline prescriptive grammar as just, you know, rules of language authorities that um, are arbitrary and don't really tell us much about how language actually works. And to some extent, that's true. But there actually is a kind of a fuzzier line between descriptive grammar and prescriptive grammar than we typically think. And I was really curious about investigating that. And one of my big research questions was with a focus on prescription as we have in English, how much does that actually change or does it even change your natural language grammar? And how much overlap is there between your, um, you know, we think of descriptive grammar as as um, sort of hermetically sealed off from prescriptive grammar. But I was really curious to see how much, you know, what, how do prescription and description overlap? That was mm -hmm. one piece of my research that was really interesting. And I got into this really cool stuff, stuff called uh, grammatical viruses. And by Nick, Nick Sobin is one of the people that has studied that a lot. And I got into some of his research on that. And that is like, how does a prescriptive rule actually sort of integrate itself into your descriptive grammar, basically. And I'm probably not characterizing that completely like he might, but that was a really interesting question for me. So I got into a lot of study of micro variation, which is something super interesting that we don't usually talk about in our sort of standardized classes, um, mm -hmm. like in syntax, for example. But micro variation is, you know, let's say that you're looking at some 
grammatical construction like WH movement and it works a certain way, we say. Mm -hmm. Well, when you take a kind of deeper dive into that, you see that actually a lot of the things that we assume are going on, let's let's say WH movement is typically accompanied by subject auxiliary inversion. Well, not always. And so when are those sorts of assumed rules actually, what, what is the sort of micro variation within those rules? Um, gets to be really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going off on a tangent here. I can see it coming, but <laughs> as I do. Tangents are welcome. But it's so it, it was so cool. It was like we assume there are these certain sorts of rules in English that are descriptive, you know, mm -hmm. these descriptive operations or processes that um, occur in English, but we actually violate them a lot. And so what are we talking about when we talk about those sorts of violations and do we even call them violations? So that's why we have this term micro variation where there is this variety, there's this flexibility within those rules that we don't usually talk about. So that I got really into that stuff too and that was interesting. But circling back from my tangent to prescription, I've always been very interested in what kinds of rules are prescriptive rules? So are they morphological? Are they typically spelling rules? Are mm -hmm. they syntactic rules? You know, what are the sorts of categories of prescriptive rules? You know, what makes a rule a prescriptive rule? And is there any sort of hierarchy among them? Like, are there some that are more, you know, are there more sort of spelling prescriptions than there are other things and why and, and all of that? So I started looking at a lot of research on different kinds of prescriptive rules, not just on prescription as a thing, but just the actual grammatical structure of prescriptive rules. And I got really involved in that, and that was super interesting. And I did a lot of research on Anne Curzan's work on different categories of prescriptions. So some rules are sort of politically restorative. So for example, prescriptions about gender neutral language, mm -hmm. for example, or, um, you know, identity terms and things yeah. like that. Those are prescriptions, but they have a more of a positive social impact, um, but they're still prescriptions. So that be mm -hmm. one category that's very different from something like a, a word meaning change. For, for example, semantic change over time is something that lots of times there's prescriptions against word meaning change. So aggravate meaning to irritate, for example. That's a completely different sort of category of prescription. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the impetus for my bad grammar class, and I rolled that into the study of the history of English and mm -hmm. to sort of give students the background of where prescriptive grammar, the social attitudes out of which prescription sort of emerged in the 17th century in Britain, and then also connect language change with prescription itself. So it was a super fun class to teach and my mm -hmm. students were awesome and they came up with some really interesting projects and just things I never would have thought of. So it was really fun. Yeah, I love that the research started in that place of the line between descriptivism and prescriptivism not actually being as definitive as we maybe think it to be or feel like we're taught it to be. I've been having that exact thought a lot lately with, like you said, gender neutral language or the way that we talk about like disability and person first language or right. slurs that are reclaimed, anything where there are culturally established rules of who's allowed, you know, how we feel about who should say what 
isn't that like that's a prescriptivism rule though that's you know right. yeah yep, exactly yeah yeah so i love that that gets involved there because it's so much more complicated than just prescriptivism bad descriptivism <laughs> exactly and yeah. and we all norm i mean the other thing that i think has been really interesting and this is a big deal in linguistics right now and i'm glad because it wasn't when i was in grad school and that is like where do you get your data so mm. if you say you're going to study french um, for your 321 project let's say which variety of French? Who are the speakers of that variety of French? You know, what do we, why do we even have this term French and we just assume it's this thing, just like English? You know, English mm -hmm. is hugely variable yeah. around the globe. And so just paying attention to those kinds of things and, and um, how linguists sort of fall back on stock paradigms of syntactic data that are usually mainstream, privileged speakers, you know, non I don't even want to say non-standard speakers because that's a, attaching a label that kind of supports the whole idea of the right. label. Um, yeah, yeah. But let's say non-mainstream varieties remain outside of the paradigms that we study to come up with, you know, grammatical theories. And therefore, we're not, you know, seeing the whole picture. And linguists are, are very guilty of that. I mean, we study the same paradigms of... Western European languages to make our points about certain operations. And um, I think that's changing a lot. And I think it's become much more diverse. But linguists certainly norm all the time. And even though we say we're studying how people talk and not how they should talk or how they're supposed to talk, are we really? I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of times we're drawing on mainstream paradigms and ignoring a lot of data that might change some of our conclusions about things. <laughs> you're at the roots of it you're at the roots of the structure <laughs> it's so oh, cool man. it's so interesting yeah so it isn't just which languages you study it's the varieties among those you know because the language is sort of a construct really mm -hmm. um there's so much variation for example in just what we call english and we have this sort of paradigm of well here's what english really is and everything else is deviant or mm -hmm. everything else is non-standard and we got to reposition some of those other varieties, not even other varieties. I can't even talk about it without othering. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, it's just been, it's been so exciting. I just feel like there's this never ending, interesting stuff to study, you know, no matter how long you're a linguist, there's just always something really cool mm -hmm. and interesting that that's new. And then your students always bring up new stuff that, you know, you never would have thought about like, you know, how does the font that you use influence your perception of the person who's, you know, that's a normative yeah. thing too, you know, yep. all the visuals and, all, you know, just all kinds of cool stuff like that. So anyway, that I just want to say too, that I, again, I, that's one of the things I love about Western is that we can come up with these cool classes and teach them and have wonderful students who just dive right in. And it's really mm -hmm. great. You know, we have this flexibility that I think is really wonderful um, yeah. and very exciting for me. I mean, it was really fun to come back off a sabbatical and teach the stuff I'd been thinking about. You know, it was mm -hmm. really fun. Was that your plan going into that research? Were you thinking about having a class based on it or did it come up later on? I was, but I would have probably been 
not, I wouldn't have avoided teaching it. I just would have felt like I wasn't ready. Mm. And then we, we got the 302 and I thought, oh, I really want to teach a course that integrates some overview of the history of English with this, you know, this legacy of prescription that we have today. And it just worked out as a perfect 302. I don't know if I would have taught it as a 400 level. I think mm-hmm. it was a really good 300 level because it, I had students with all kinds of different backgrounds and they didn't have to have anything but just a basic prerequisite to take the class. Because for the 302, we have to think of a course that even if you get upper division students in it, it's going to be new for everybody. So this was a class that no one's, since I've been at Western, ever taught. So I thought this mm-hmm. would be a perfect class that um, we haven't really had on the books. And so it would be a really good 300 level class for a student of any level because no one yeah. would really have that much background in it. So it turned out to be great. And I'd, I'd love to teach it again. I have all kinds of ideas about how to teach it again. It would be really fun. Yeah. 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 And very um, like applicable to so many things, too. Uh, I know a fair amount of students do a linguistics minor uh, if they're, you know, in creative writing or English or so many other things. And it feels almost like a continuation of a first year student writing seminar or like the first year student English class. Like now you've learned some of the things expected of you in college writing. Let's go so much deeper on that. So it right. feels yeah. like a very cool continuation of, you know, how you use language knowledge. What were some of the things that students were looking at in... Oh, jeez. It sounds like they were up to some cool stuff. Oh, they were so interesting. Um, language around disability studies mm-hmm. and how that's changed over time. Uh, like I said, the font... Mm-hmm. project was so interesting about how different fonts, different graphics, you know, mm-hmm. can um, have, you know, like science fiction movie trailers have, yeah. you know, those kind of stretched out fonts, you know, right. and all that kind of stuff. Just just things that I hadn't really thought about, about how that influence our perceptions. Um, the language around uh, racial slurs, like you mm-hmm. mentioned, or ethnic slurs and characterizations of different immigrant populations. Oh, geez. Um, Just so much interesting stuff. It was really interesting. And and another thing that we did in class was we took, as we went through the history of English, we kind of compiled this Google Doc of language attitudes about Mm. speakers of other languages to kind of get at, like, why is norming language so powerful and why do we do it? And a lot of it is around political situations. So like, you know, who's in power? And, and, and I'm thinking about like the 17th century and 18th century, there was a lot of prescription um, that was sort of aligned with different um, political views. So mm-hmm. about conservatism or more, you know, liberal views about change and things like that. So we compiled this sort of list of the kinds of attitudes that influenced prescription early on, and then we compared them to current ones. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of students looked at things like political correctness, Mm -hmm. gender and language, and attitudes toward language change and things like that. So what was really interesting is we saw, unlike grammar guide sites that exist now, exactly the same attitudes reflected as in the 17th century. So sadly, (laughs) we haven't come very far. Yeah. (laughs) 
if you Google like the top 10 grammar errors, they will all be about how this makes you look stupid or makes you look other or how you won't get a job if you use these kinds of constructions. And that, that parallels a lot of the language attitudes that we read about in the 17th century. So it was really interesting, but it was also enlightening to see that these things don't come out of the air and just because people want to be mean mm -hmm. authorities. They align with our fears about change and our fears about being left behind and not yeah. being part of the group and all kinds of, you know, pretty natural social attitudes. But what I think is different about linguistic discrimination or linguistic authority is that it's so socially acceptable, it's not really questioned in the same way that other kinds of authority are. Yeah. And, you know, and so it was good to highlight that because it goes under the radar mm -hmm. because we're so used to it. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, of course, you have to speak correct English or you'll never get a job. Well, you know, that's not really true on a number of levels. And so it was interesting to kind of tease apart these sorts of acceptable and familiar assumptions that mm. we sort of operate on. The thought that we're still experiencing a type of push and resistance to language change that has existed for 300 years is like on one hand that's exhausting that's a lot of years that's a big number and on the <laughs> other hand like you said it doesn't that resistance on any side doesn't come out of thin air and I guess it's kind of enlightening to think well okay so this has been going on for some time this is not new this is not a new fight I guess is what right. I'm saying you know this is well it's not only not new but we're we all participate yeah yeah and so like I said before, linguists aren't exempt as language scientists. We're just right. like out of the fray and we don't have, you know, we're all so neutral. That's we're not the not wizards true. off in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think so. So, and I've always been very curious about why people have such visceral reactions to, like you said, language change or, you know, some kind of prescription. And they're, they're, really strong and we kind of I don't I won't say that we answered that question in my class but I think we at least came up with some ideas about just how norms make people feel safe yeah and language norms are a kind of an easy way to do it because you don't really need any expertise and you don't need anything other I mean everybody corrects everybody else on the mm -hmm. playground kids correct each other so yep language authority, anybody can be a language authority. And so it's a kind of quick and easy way to, you know, gain some power and, mm -hmm. and some safety, you know, I think for people. I love the idea of just a crowd of like five-year-olds being the most notorious grammar correction oh, people. Yeah. I just, I picture like my <laughs> three-year-old nephew and his capacity for language and just that makes me happy. <laughs> it's true. And, and my son, I remember when my kids were little and my son came home and my son and daughter are two years apart. And my daughter said something. She said, gonna, I think, or something like that. And he said, well, that's not a word. And I was like, what? You know, and so we had to have one of those parent-child conferences about that. But just things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's what they absorb in school is, you know, even in the face of, yeah, now we want to teach about diversity. That hasn't really trickled down 
to how we talk about language. And mm -hmm. um, so I think connecting those two things is probably a really good way to bridge. Yeah. Or, you know, make that change, I hope. It feels like it's the, the conversations are there of language involved in like inclusivity and shifting power, but it's not always connected to, oh, the shifting of the language shifts power. I agree. It feels like that merger is just waiting to happen. Yeah. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's that correction is so personal to people, like the mm -hmm. being corrected on things or being, it's built into how you learn language in the first place. And if it gets you know, corrected or critiqued later on, I think a lot of people have an experience, at least a lot of people in the U.S. have an experience of being corrected in grade school, in high school, or earlier on their grammar. Uh, and I know looking back for me, that's probably one of the reasons I've ended up where I am academically <laughs> is <laughs> that correction and wondering why. Uh, so I'm wondering for you, what got you into studying language and then linguistics in the first place? Oh, boy. I have just always been interested. Uh, and I was a terrible grammar <laughs> maven when I was a kid. I think that was kind of reflective of, you know, if you're really interested in language, what do you do? Well, you correct other people's grammar, you know, because um, <laughs> that was sort of the social outlet to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I was always very interested in you know, for lack of a better word, in syntactic structure, I, I took, um, mm -hmm. I was fortunate when I was in grade school and high school, it was all public school, but um, we got to take language classes all the mm -hmm. way through. And so I took French and German all the way through middle school and high school. I don't even think it was, I wasn't middle school, it was junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I went to college, I continued, I took French and German all the way through my college career. And taking those two languages, I think, you know, I mean, that was what I was really interested in, in academics. And I, I was really interested in the grammar of the languages, the structure of the languages, um, the morphology, the syntax of phonology. I didn't know the, those terms at the time, but that was what I was really interested in. But world language study in school when I was in school was mostly about literature. So my French major was mostly focused on French literature. And when I graduated from college, I thought, oh, I really want to learn more about the language. And so I just looked up linguistics. I didn't know what it was. And I called the University of Washington and I said, what's linguistics? Oh, I love that. <laughs> And the secretary, the, the, she was the secretary of the department at the time, and she was there the whole time I was in grad school. And her name was Anita. And she said, well, it's the study of syntax and phonology and morphology. And I was like, wow, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds really cool. So I applied, and I applied also to the master's and PhD program in anthropology, because I was really interested in anthropology, because there, there was a big connection there. Mm -hmm. um, between linguistics and anthropology, of course, and linguistics accepted me first. And so in anthropology, I think said, you can't come until the next fall or something like that. And I was like, ah, I got to go now. So that was totally serendipitous. Yeah. And so I went to the UW and got thrown into theoretical linguistics. I had no idea 
But I just thought it was the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. I loved it. So it was, I only applied to one graduate school. (laughs) I just, because I wanted to go to Seattle. And so Mm -hmm. it was just, I just, it was amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I look back on it, it's crazy. Yeah. I love the magic of just calling the university. It's like, <laughs> I, I so appreciate the magic of a good, a good Google spiral, a good Google rabbit hole, but there's also something very beautiful in just calling the school and what is this thing? I would like to know. That's very well, fun. Well, and you could do it back then, you know, I think, yeah. it, I don't think you could do it now, but you know, at the time linguistics was way newer and mm-hmm. the department was much smaller. It was much more of a unknown kind of area of study that, you know, it wasn't probably hugely competitive, like trying to get into an um, English lit program or something mm-hmm. like that that's much more established. I don't know. Um, but it was, it, I was very lucky because I r- really did fall in love with it. And I think um, it could have been a complete disaster. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it wasn't. But <laughs> and it, it wasn't. worked out. Yeah, it worked out. It worked yeah. out quite well. Yeah. So it yeah. sounds like you've gotten to witness quite a few changes in linguistics as a field of study, as the way that it exists within uh, higher ed institutions. And I imagine, you know, the field itself, how it is used out in the world and how it shapes things. Um, thinking about, you know, what led you to work on the grammar correction research. And I'm wondering what's just a standout change that you've seen over the course of your time in linguistics? Wow. There's so many. I guess I have to say two things. I can't mm-hmm. give it just one. I think two things, and they're real different. So one is just the proliferation of undergraduate programs. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Because, like I said, when I was in grad school, when I was in college, I, I'd never heard of linguistics, and I could probably be wrong about this, but as far as I know, there were hardly any linguistics undergraduate programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody who entered linguistics entered it via some other path. So that's a huge change and a wonderful one. I think it's just so mm-hmm. important to get linguistics as an undergraduate area of study. So that's one thing. Um, And the other thing I would just say is very broadly is just diversity. I think linguistics is not a highly diverse field in terms of race and ethnicity of linguists necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I think the attention to diversity is really shifting Mm -hmm. um, in a very positive way. It's not super recent, but it's it's growing, and I mm-hmm. think it's really important. It's be, being much more recognized. It just was not even an, on the radar when I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Just not on the radar. You know, there, there wasn't, you just studied what the professors told you to study, and that's what you did. And it was, you know, all kind of coming out of the, I don't want to say Chomskyan tradition, but, you know, the influence of Chomsky on the field was was huge and it still is. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's broadened out far beyond the borders of my perceptions of the field when I was in graduate school. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah. And welcome and necessary. Yes. Yeah. I feel like that ties in with the uh, the flexibility that you mentioned in teaching at Western, where you have kind of a sandbox in terms of mm-hmm. the classes that you were teaching. 
I think as students, I know for myself, I can feel that reflected in what we are encouraged to explore in all of the linguistics classes that I've had, where I, I'm the kind of person where if I can't do a project that's going to make me laugh or is something I would already be spending hours Googling <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to want to do it and it's going to feel like pulling teeth. So it has to be something like weird or way out there or based on media. And y'all just, I feel like, encourage us to to go after really whatever we want to look at. And it's really incredible. Um, and I think that welcomes in a lot of the diversity and a lot of like the broadened research that gets looked into, which we're really fortunate in our department. I also think that there is the opportunity to do that actual research and to find that mentorship early on, as opposed to like, ah, I mean, I did this one project on this thing and it was kind of cool, but like, whatever, throw that away. But that, you know, y'all encourage us to, to stick with those things. I, I just think we have an amazing department. I mean, the, my colleagues are just fantastic and our students are fantastic and I'm not making a plug. It's just really true, <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's this sort of synergy of, creative energy in our department that's really just wonderful and mm -hmm. and exciting and i think we're always trying to figure out new ways to um, new pedagogies and new methodologies and new areas of study and how to break down the borders between these more sort of traditional ways of of doing linguistics and it's it's super exciting it's so much fun um to be in this department, I mean, it's just a blast. I have to say, it's really cool. And we, you know, we get together as colleagues and read articles about stuff and talk about interesting things. And, you know, we're always trying to sort of move the needle in some way towards, you know, just more inclusive and more interdisciplinary, all that kind of stuff. You know, I think it's, it's just great. And I learn a lot from my colleagues because we all have pretty different backgrounds, I think and a different expertise. And it's really great um, to not have everybody pigeonholed. Like when I was in grad school, everybody was a theoretical linguist. So you either had a phonologist, a morphologist, a syntactician, a semanticist, but you know, they, it was all very focused on linguistic theory and not on like fieldwork methodology like Ginny does. I mean, that's mm -hmm. so cool to have that option in our department or the yeah. lab experimentation that Dr. Sandoval and Dr. Jansen do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's great. And I think having Kristen as a chair, we have to not forget that because that's yeah. huge too in our um, flexibility and creativity in the department is just kind of our, our ethic, which is great. Yeah, she's such a wonderful champion of all of the things that we want to do. And yeah, I feel so fortunate to be in the linguistics program that I ended up being in. It's really beautiful. So Anne, this conversation has been so good, and I don't want it to end. <laughs> but I got to get to a class. <laughs> but I do want to wrap up with two questions. Uh, the first, if you could bring back a class, or create any class on any topic as broad or as narrow as you want what would that class be Gosh, i feel kind of funny question asking like you just did a new class but i'm like i want to know what everyone else what, what y'all would come up with even still um i have to say 
boy, there's so many things. I think it would be micro variation, mm. which is mm-hmm. sounds kind of out there, but I just think it would be so interesting to just take a few basic known theoretical principles about English and just check them out a little mm-hmm. more deeply and like really um, look at data um, from different varieties of English, all different varieties of English, to try and come up with a fuller picture of what, because I'm really a syntactician at heart. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to just sort of look at more data in more sort of more real actual data to see, you know, what this thing really is, you know, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's what I'd like to do. I think that would be really interesting. Just deeper dive into more data um, that brings up what we used to call an error is actually something that people do. So mm-hmm. what does that mean about how we're describing, you know, the rule of English and what we think is a violation of it? I just think that would be really interesting. I do too. I think that'd be incredible. And I feel like it's so prime for like a seminar discussion type of class. And yeah. that it's so the level of mind blow I remember first getting when I learned like phonetics, I feel like it would provide the same level of mind blow at the end of someone's, you know, academic career at Western in undergrad. And I love that. I love that you can still have your mind absolutely exploded at <laughs> any level um, in the major. That sounds, yeah, that sounds so cool. And I will add it to the list of other classes professors have said they'd create uh, that make me wonder why I ask this question. Because every time I do, I get really sad I won't be around to take all of these. (laughs) And my last question, if you had an extra faucet attached to every sink in your home, what would come out of that faucet? Oh, vino verde, Mm. which is a Portuguese white wine that I drink <laughs> every single night. And oh so that's, it, I would just have to have it on tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yep. sure. It would probably be in my, I don't think I'd have it in my kitchen. I'd have it in my other sort of off the kitchen faucet. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it would be vino verde. Yeah. Excellent. And if it wasn't that, it would be chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready. I was wondering, is it going to be, is it going to be a food item? Is it going to be a beverage? Is it going to be like, is it going to be tactical? Is it going to be like neosporin? Cause you know, like hand sanitizer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm a very clumsy person. So I'm like, I mean, hydrogen peroxide might be helpful, Mm. like for all my cuts and scrapes. (laughs) Yeah. But I love that. Well, thank you, Anne, so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciated your time and getting to talk to you. It was just a blast. And I just am already rethinking everything I said. (laughs) Oh, could I said that more clearly? But it's great. Yeah, thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye.